The last month, we've been, um, we've been unpacking our mission as a church. And we looked at, well, actually, l- let me ask you. Those of you that are, are with us all the time, uh, on three, so I want you to yell out the mission of the journey. Are you ready? One, two, three. Yeah, you guys are really quick on that, so we're going to try that one more time. <laughs> on three, are you ready? One, two, three. Yes, just love God. Some of you are slower than the others, but that's okay. Uh, <clears throat> love God, love others, and love the world. And that first week, we began to see how we could love God. Uh, the second week, uh, talking about how we can really love one another, especially as it uh, relates to the body of Christ here in the church. And then the last week, we, we looked at how we can begin to love the world and begin to understand that and see that from, uh, from our perspective. When we gave you some things that, as leadership, that we're looking at doing that's going to help us to accomplish that goal and that task. And, and it was just awesome. And as I was preparing for the last month and I was thinking about Easter, I thought, you know, one of the cool things would be is if we just also then unpacked God's mission and, and begin to understand what God's mission is for us and for this world. And so that's what we're going to do today. It's, I just called it Understanding the Mission of God. And we're going to do this in a couple different ways. Um, you'll see here in a moment as we read together. But the other thing is simply this. I'm going to share some things with you that probably I shared with you about two and a half years ago around the Christmas season. Um, thank you, man. I figure Hall's in there won't, won't, can't hurt. It'll melt. Um, but it's around the Christmas season. But I'm, I want to share this again with you because I don't know of a better way of under, helping us to understand what God's mission is than to share this with you. Because from my perspective, uh, and I, I won't apologize again for resharing it, and part of the reason is this, because God has already given us a script, and there's not a better script than what I'm going to tell you today from God's Word. And so I think it's going to help us to understand uh, the mission of God. So with that said, I want us to stand together. We're going to read from God's Word. We're going to be looking... At John chapter 19. We're going to read this in three different sections. So you just kind of follow along. But read. I want you to read it. I want us to read it together as the body. The first section comes from John 19 verses 16 to 18. Are you ready church? Here we go. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself he went to the place called, called place of the skull. In Hebrew, Golgotha. Now down in verses 28 to 30, we'll read, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Down in verse, starting verse 38 through 42. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. 
With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial customs, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of the crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb, never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. You may be seated, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. <coughs> now you may be thinking, this is kind of an odd place to stop. The crucifixion, the death, <coughs> excuse me, and then the burial. I mean, we just stopped with Jesus being laid in the tomb. How many of you ever watch TV shows? One of our favorites that uh, we watch usually, I'll usually get home somewhere in that 5.30 range to eat, and uh, a lot of times uh, Lucy has Castle on, on TNT. Now, how many like to watch Castle? Anybody seen Castle? Where, where, where you guys been, man? It's a great show. Come on. Anyway, we like to watch Castle. Other TV shows do this as well, but, <coughs> oh, excuse me, there are times when the show opens, and it has this really dramatic scene. And then all of a sudden it stops. And you're going, whoa, what just happened? And, and what are they going to do about this? And then the next thing you see, it'll say 48 hours earlier. You ever seen that? And then they go back and they tell you everything that led up to that spot. And then they bring it to resolution. They resolve it after the fact. So, we're not going back 48 hours earlier, but we are going back several thousand years earlier, okay? Because I want us to see, literally from the beginning, the mission of God. And my prayer is this, that we can learn from these events that left Jesus in the tomb, and we can discover the rest of the story. So, pray with me as we begin today. Lord, I just thank you for this time. God, I thank you for just all you do. Man, what a great chance we've had to be in your house today to honor you and to worship you. And now, Father, may my words be your words, and may you take them and help us to understand such an important truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And I, pray, uh, I apologize for having to drink hot tea, but if you want me to get through this, or maybe you don't. Uh, <laughs> I got to. God's mission to save the world from sin can be summed up with this incredible word. And the word is redemption. It means deliverance from some evil by payment of a price. And throughout the Old Testament, it had several usages. Um, but common to them all was the idea of freedom that comes from a price that was paid. Now, I wish I knew who the author of this was, but somebody wrote, redemption is a word that implies helplessness. It's the picture of one held captive by forces that they cannot overcome. It's only by their intervention of a third party that they can be rescued. You see, redemption, and I want you to underline this, redemption can never be possessed by human effort alone. It can only happen through the work of a redeemer. And so throughout the Old Testament, 
God's people look forward in hope to the day when God would send the Messiah, the one who would redeem them and who would buy them back from their sin and fulfill God's mission. Now, there's something that we need to understand. Redemption started literally before the creation of the world in the mind of God. And it was finally brought out into the light when Jesus was born. Because his births set into motion God's final piece of the redemption puzzle. And so this is what I want us to do for the next few moments. I just kind of want to paint a picture in your minds so that you can place the picture in your hearts of what God's mission really is and what God has done to buy you and I back from sin. Here's the thing. The whole message of redemption can be summed up with these two words, and and these are two words that we've talked about before, so hopefully you remember this. The two words are substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Now, before you lose hope or fall asleep, I want to remind you of what these two words mean. The word substitute means to take the place of. Those of you that have taught in school or have been in school at some point in your life will remember that when a teacher is gone, what do they have? They have a substitute. A substitute comes in and the substitute takes the place of the teacher. Now, the word atonement carries the meaning of a payment for or to pay the price of. In other words, it's a payment made to satisfy the demands of justice. So if you put these two words together, substitute, someone to take our place, and atonement to pay the price of. And what's the price of? It's the price of our sin. So we have somebody, a substitute, that's going to pay our price for us. That is substitutionary atonement. And that's the central message of God's mission to redeem mankind. And let me tell you, that sets us apart from every other world religion. Because as we've said before, in every other religion, if you do something wrong, you must self-atone. You pay. In other words, you screw up, you pay. You break the rules, you pay. But in Christianity, God said, I'll pay. I'll pay the penalty for your screw-ups. I will be your substitute, and I will atone for your sin. So, what did God do to put his plan of redemption into motion? I mean, what was that process? Well, as I said a moment ago, in order to fully understand the concept that Jesus became our substitute to pay the price for our sin, we have to start literally in the beginning. We've got to go back to the Garden of Eden. We've got to go back to Genesis chapter 3. About 10 years ago now, I was at um, the Leadership Summit that's, uh, that's actually done at Willow Creek, but literally they have satellite sites all over the nation and all over the world because it's now called the Global Leadership Summit. And I heard Bill Hybels talk about this. And the things he said that day literally changed my thinking and, and it changed me in regards to what God has done for us. And it helped me to put things in perspective. 
So I'm going to share some of those things with you today. So as we go back to Genesis chapter 3, if you've been raised in the church, you know the story of Adam and Eve. And you know how they were in the garden, and the garden was awesome. And they had this incredible fellowship with God. And everything was great. It's just there was only one rule, basically, and that is do not eat from the tree of knowledge and life that's in the middle of the garden. Don't eat from there. If you do, you will, you will die. And they knew that. So one day, Adam and Eve, they're fellowshipping in the garden. And Satan comes along as the serpent, and he slithers up to them and basically begins to plant these bad ideas in their head. Like, God really didn't say that you can't eat from any of this fruit, did he? And he goes, no, no, he said, we can eat of any of the fruit, just not the fruit from the tree in the middle. We can't eat from that because if we do, we'll surely die. Then he said, no, God's not going to kill you. You're not going to die. I mean, after all, the fruit's pretty good. And as we know, Eve grabs the fruit, eats it, gives it to her husband. And all of a sudden, they understand and they realize their nakedness and shame. And so they begin to sew fig leaves together to cover that, their nakedness. And later that day, they hear God coming through the garden, and they hide. And God says, Adam, Eve, hey, where are you guys at? Now, I always think that's kind of humorous because he's God. He already knows where they're at, okay? But he says, where are you at? And, and, and so they say, we're hiding because of our shame, our nakedness. And God says, well, who told you you were naked? And then, and then as it usually happens, the buck starts passing. Well, it was the serpent, God, that, that this, you know, the, they got me to eat of that. And then Adam, no, it was Eve, God. And then we begin to pass the buck. And so what we find out next is that God begins to give the consequences for their sin. And this is what's going to happen. And then something remarkable happens. And it's found down in verse 21 of chapter 3. And this is what we read. I mean, this is amazing. Now, let me tell you, you've, if you've read through Genesis, you probably have read this a lot. And you probably skipped over this verse many times just reading it and not really thinking about the impact of it. But as we read it, I want you to think about what it's really saying. Listen to verse 21. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins... For Adam and his wife. And you're going, so? What's the big deal? And the Lord God made clothing for animal skins from Adam and his wife. Basically what happens is this. God shows up and he does something really incredible. He takes an innocent third party. He kills it, sheds its blood, takes its skin, and covers their shame. Now, death hadn't been in the world before. They didn't know what death was. And yet God takes an innocent third party, kills the animal, sheds its blood, and clothes their nakedness and clothes their shame. Now, here's what you need to understand. Many scholars believe that this was the beginning of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. This was the beginning of God's work of redemption, and it was a foreshadowing of what Christ would do for all mankind as he would become that lamb 
that was shed, whose blood was shed for you and I. And Adam and Eve learned that day, they discovered that day that without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness. Now, let's roll the clock ahead a few years. And the Israelites... The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. They've been enslaved for 430 years. God decides that it's time to set them free. And so he brings 10 plagues upon the people of, and the land of Egypt and Pharaoh. The last being the death of the firstborn. God comes to Moses. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell all the people, you need to take a lamb, just enough for your family, if there's a family that doesn't have a lamb that's big enough for their family, then you need to share with them. But you take that lamb, and I want you to kill that lamb. And then I want you to take the blood of that lamb, and I want you to paint your doorpost with it. And then I want you to roast that lamb, and I want you to eat it all. Because tonight, my death angel's coming. And my death angel will take the firstborn of every home that is not covered by the blood of the Lamb. But every home that's covered by the blood of the Lamb will be saved. Now let's roll the clock ahead a few more years. And let's look at the sacrificial system of the Old Testament for a moment. If you were just a normal rank-and-file Israelite and you messed up, you, you, you would have to kill an animal, make a blood sacrifice, because something would have to atone for your sin. Now, this wouldn't give you full forgiveness. It would just roll your sins back for a year. But this practice turned into this incredible event called the Day of Atonement. And during this celebration, the high priest would basically, they would have two goats. One goat would be taken, and it would be killed, and it would be slain, and it would become a blood sacrifice to the Lord. There would be a second goat that would be brought. All the people would be gathered like this in the tent of meeting. The high priest would be at the beginning, up front. The goat would be brought to the high priest. And the high priest would stand over that goat, and all of a sudden he would just begin to announce all the sins of the people for that year. And after he had finished announcing all the sins of the people, he would place his hands upon the head of the goat and then he would say something like this, I transfer your sins to the head of this goat. And then that goat, they would choose a young man who would take that goat out into the wilderness where it would be killed. Bad for the goat, but good for the people. Now, let's roll the clock ahead just a little more. And during the days of Isaiah, the world looked pretty dark. It was pretty hopeless. And yet in the midst of this hopelessness, God gives them a sign of hope. And he tells them of the promised Messiah, the Deliverer, the Redeemer. And in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So the ancient world knew that their only hope would be found in the coming of the Messiah, the Lamb of God who would pay the price to free them from their sin. Now, as we come into the New Testament, God continues to unfold this amazing mission of redemption. 
And in the book of Luke in chapter 1, starting in verse 30, this is what we read. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. In Matthew 1.21, it puts it this way. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Look, because he will save his people from their sins. You see, God was continuing to bring about his mission to redeem us from our sins. Now, let's roll the clock ahead about 30 years. John the Baptist is out preaching a message of repentance to the Jews. And as we read in John chapter 1, verse 29 in the message, this is what it says. The very next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he yelled out, Here he is, God's Passover lamb. He forgives the sins of the world. Now, do you hear what John is saying? What he's proclaiming to all these Jews? He is saying this. There, coming before you, he's the one. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the Passover lamb whose blood will be spilled to save you. He's the one that all the Old Testament was pointing to. It will be his blood that is spilled to wash your sins. He has become our scapegoat upon which all of our sins will be placed. And not just for a year, but for all eternity. And about three years later, Jesus is observing the Passover with his disciples. I honestly believe that at this point... In Jesus' life and ministry, knowing that in just a few hours, a few days, he would be crucified. He really had hoped that his disciples would have grasped who he was as he shared this last Passover. Celebrating what had happened back in Exodus. When the Passover, when the blood of the lamb saved the people because it was on the doorpost. I believe he really had hoped that his disciples would have finally grasp the concept of who he had become and who he was. And yet, if you know the story, you know that they not only complained about the fact that nobody was there to wash their feet, but then they began to complain about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so at some point in the evening after washing their feet, Jesus takes the loaf and he takes the cup and as he has these, he basically says this, this is my body. And my body is going to carry all your sins. And my body is going to be broken for you. And this represents my blood. And it will be spilled to wash your sins away. It will take all of this. And it will take all of this to redeem you and to buy you back. And a few short hours later, he was nailed to the cross. And as he died, it was no accident what he said. Because he said, it is finished. It is finished. And he wasn't saying that because he was giving up. 
He wasn't saying that because he was surrendering. He was saying that because he was saying God's plan of redemption that started before the creation of the world, that was introduced in the garden with Adam and Eve, that was demonstrated throughout the Old Testament, that was birthed through my mom, Mary, that John talked about, that I shared with my disciples at our last meal together. It is now being fulfilled in me. I have become your substitute. I have paid the price for your sin. I've atoned for those sins and all the sins of mankind. It is finished. It has been brought to completion. It is fulfilled in me. How awesome is that? Oswald Chambers wrote, The greatest note of triumph that ever sounded in the ears of a startled universe sounded on the cross. It is finished. That's the last word in the redemption of man. Now, if you haven't heard anything else, please hear this. Jesus' death on the cross met the demands of justice. He paid the penalty for our sin. It's something that we could never do, but he did. We have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus. Paul writes in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, God was pleased for all of himself to live in Christ and through Christ. God has brought all things back to himself again, things on earth and things in heaven. God made peace through the blood of Christ's death on the cross. Wow. Now, there's something extremely important that I need to ask you, and it's simply this. Was the crucifixion in and of itself enough to complete God's mission to save mankind. I don't want you to answer, but I do want you to think about it. Was the crucifixion in and of itself enough to complete God's mission to save mankind? I mean, if the story ended where we stopped at the beginning in John chapter 19, if the story ended with the crucifixion, the death, and then the burial of Jesus, would that have been enough to save us? Here's what's tough for some people to understand. Jesus' death on the cross was not a standalone event. It wasn't a standalone event. Yes, it happened and it carries an incredible amount of meaning. But there's something else that gives the cross its significance. And there's something else that gives the cross its power. And do you know what it is? What is it? It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives the cross the significance that it has. It's the resurrection that gives the cross the power. It's the resurrection. You see, the story doesn't end in John chapter 19. Instead, it continues on. In fact, let's see what Matthew has to say in Matthew chapter 8, I mean chapter 28, verses 1 to 7. Follow along with me. The day after the Sabbath day was the first day of the week. At dawn on the first day, Mary Magdalene and another woman named Mary went to look at the tomb. At that time, there was a strong earthquake and an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, went to the tomb and rolled the stone away from the entrance. Then he sat on the stone. He was shining as bright as lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The soldiers guarding the tomb shook with fear. I imagine they did. 
because of the angel, and they became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, don't be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here. He has risen from the dead, as he said he would. Come and see the place where his body was, and go quickly and tell his followers, Jesus has risen from the dead. Amen? You see, the cross and the resurrection go together. They are a package deal. You can't have one without the other. The cross only finds its meaning and fulfillment in light of the resurrection. And there would be no need for a resurrection without the cross. Here's the thing. Without the resurrection, all of Jesus' suffering and, all of, and even his death on the cross would have been in vain. Put another way, without the resurrection, Jesus would have been just an ordinary man who died an extremely violent death, but wouldn't have been triumphant over death. Without the resurrection, there would be no chance of having our broken relationship with God restored. Without the resurrection, you and I would have no hope of ever having eternal life and forgiveness. It's all because of the resurrection. You know, one of the main passages of Scripture that develops this idea is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's the largest chapter that deals with the theology of the resurrection. And in this chapter, Paul unpacks the misconceptions as well um, as its importance in roughly 58 verses. You see, the problem was this. For some reason, the Corinthian church had begun to deny the historical reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection. It had become a nice teaching tool, but that's all it was. They wanted to relegate the resurrection to just a spiritual reality rather than a physical reality. And Paul says, hey guys, you can't do that. And here's why, because by doing that, having this line of thinking, it has the potential to literally destroy the very essence of our faith. And so Paul has to explain it to them in terms that are very crystal clear, and he says this, starting in verses 12 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the, from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Paul is saying this, without the resurrection... Our preaching is useless, our faith is useless, we are liars, and we are still guilty of our sins. Those who have already died are simply dead without hope of eternal life, and we are to be pretty pitied people. That's what he's saying. Now again, you may be thinking, but didn't the cross take care of our sins? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, because that was part of the mission of the cross. 
But no, because without the resurrection, Jesus didn't overcome sin. If Jesus just died the death of an ordinary man, then you and I are still lost in our sin. But the good news is this, that is not the case. Jesus conquered sin, and he conquered death through the resurrection. Our sin that he bore on the cross had to be taken into the depths to be buried and then overcome through the power of the resurrection. And let me tell you something. That is one of the incredible symbols of Christian baptism. Because Christian baptism is a symbol of your life when you are in obedience to God and you say, God, I'm ready to surrender my life. I want to die to the old self and I want to bury my sin so that you might resurrect a new person. And that's what baptism is. You see, the cross wasn't the end. It couldn't be the end if we were to have forgiveness of sin and hope of eternal life. The resurrection proves that Jesus was truly the Son of God. It proves that death is not the ultimate end of Jesus or any other person who places their trust in him. It's only the beginning. It proves that we are firm in our resolve to surrender our lives to the one who claimed that he was not only the res resurrection and the life, but he rose again to demonstrate that it was true. Hank Handegraaff writes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest feat in the annals of human history. It is the very capstone in the arch of Christianity. Without it, all else crumbles. When we fully comprehend the significance of the resurrection, our lives will be revolutionized. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. Without the resurrection, there will be no Christianity. Now, before we close... There's one more event that we need to understand. And so we're going to roll the clock ahead a lot more years. Because you see, there's a final day of reckoning coming, and the Bible is very clear about this. The Bible is very clear that there's an end point to human history where every person who has ever lived will stand before a holy God. And I believe that the only question that we will be asked is simply this, who has atoned for your sin. In other words, someone had to satisfy the demands of justice. Somebody had to pay the price for our sin. Who was it? There are only two options. Option number one, you can try to self-atone for your sin yourself. You can do that. I mean, everybody has that opportunity and that option. In other words, you can take the hit. You can try to satisfy the demands of justice. Now let me tell you, that's a bad idea. Because the Bible is very clear that if you choose to self-atone, you will be separated from God, you will be cast into eternal darkness, and you will experience incredible regret for all eternity. Why? Because there is nothing that you can do to satisfy the demands of justice. Nothing. That is why God went to such great lengths to redeem us back through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. Option two, we can allow his birth, 
his death, and his resurrection to atone for our sins. We can choose that. Isn't that awesome? We can allow God to pay the price. We can allow him to take the hit for us. We can allow him to atone for our sins. Isaiah 53 verse 6 puts it this way, The Lord has put on him the punishment for all the evil we have done. Not him, we have done. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we reflect today, here's what I, here's what I hope you'll never forget. The cross and the resurrection go hand in hand. And just as the cross shows God's amazing grace and love displayed through Christ's death, the resurrection shows Christ's awesome power to overcome sin and death for us. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? So here's where the rubber meets the road. And that is this. Every person here today has two options. What have you chose? Seriously. What option have you chose? You know. I mean, you're not fooling anybody. You know. You may have a good act here or out there, or even you may think you're getting away with it with God. But you know what you've chosen. And so you may be living your life thinking, all I got to do is be a good person. All I got to do is give the right things. I'll go to church every once in a while, give a few bucks here or there. And guess what? God's just going to one day greet me and say, oh, it's okay, just come on in. I mean, some of us live like that's the option we choose. Or have you chosen the other option, which is to allow Christ's death and his resurrection to atone for your sins? If you were to stand before a mighty God today, and he asked you who atoned for your sins, would you be able to say, Jesus Christ died for me, and I've accepted him into my life. He atoned for my sin. I've shared with you, my brother-in-law, Brad, is dying of cancer. We don't know how much longer he has. He's in a, another experimental treatment where he's been having radiation. They don't give him a lot of hope. Him and I had this conversation back this fall in October. And I just, I just said, I said, Brad, so man, how is it between you and God? He said, there's no problem. I know where I'm going. Do you? There's a final day of reckoning coming. The good news is God has already prepared the way. He has always, he's already given us every opportunity to just trust in him. First, second service. I keep saying first because normally it's first, but our, we had the 8 o'clock today. So the 9.30 service, Mike Kepler came and his wife, Kristen. And not only did they make this their church, but Mike surrendered to Christ in baptism. And we watched as he was baptized into Christ. I don't know where you're at. But as we reflect today, if there's anything on your heart 
If you just need to give, if you just need to give him your life, this is your chance. You just come, just surrender. If you just need to pray, then come, we'll pray with you. Just whatever you have, this is your chance to be with your God. Adam's going to play and, and we're going to reflect. At any point, just get up and come on down. Let's reflect.